0: This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to two sackings in the Premier League as Graham Potter leaves Chelsea after seven months and Brendan Rodgers leaves Leicester City after an FA Cup and four years in charge. What's next for both managers? What's next for both clubs? We'll talk about Manchester United's defeat at Newcastle as Eric Ten Hag asks his side to show more passion and determination. There are big victories at the bottom for West Ham and Bournemouth and we'll also very quickly touch on a huge game between Brighton and Brentford. This is The Game. Hello and welcome back to The Game podcast. I am Hugh Wisencroft. Hopefully you've all had a great weekend. I'm alongside Gregor Robertson, Tony Cascarino and Alison Rudd. And the good news is it's going to be a short episode of the podcast today because there's naff all to talk about. I mean, where, where do we even begin? Tony Cascarino. I'm going to start with you. As a former Chelsea player, we've got to go on the big news of the weekend. (laughs) Chelsea sacking the manager Graham Potter after less than seven months in charge after their 2-0 defeat at home by Aston Villa at the weekend. Their 11th defeat in 31 games under Potter since he replaced Thomas Tuchel at Stamford Bridge on the 8th of September. Now, Chelsea have dropped to 11th in the Premier League. They are 12 points outside the top four. And we all know what an incredible kind of year the club has had since being taken over by Clear Lake Capital. They've spent more than £550 million on new players this season. Chelsea said in their statement that Potter has agreed to collaborate with the club to facilitate a smooth transition. Bruno Saltor, who of course, uh, ex-Brighton player, worked with Potter there as well, will take charge of the team as their interim head coach. And it's a pretty big game up next against Liverpool as well. But really, we we have to... Talk about this sacking first. And, and you know, for, for a lot of managers, when they get sacked, I ask you guys, you know, was it fair? Was it warranted? Was it deserved? Whereas I think for Potter, the question, Tony, is why now?
1: My answer to you, Hugh, would be when international breaks happen and then the club's hierarchy speak to each other and they chat and they talk about what's going to develop over the next few weeks when the club, you know, returns to the Premier League and then has Champions League football afterwards. And if they get cold feet about what happened after Saturday against Aston Villa and they lose that particular game and they start thinking, have we got any chance of winning the Champions League tie against Real Madrid, home and away? And if they go, no, well, now after that defeat, they certainly won't qualify for Europe via the top four. And I just think they've gone, well, there's nothing to win. There's nothing to play for. If we don't believe this guy can guide us to the victory over Real Madrid home and away, where we could still win the trophy and get into, obviously, the Champions League next year, then they're going to pull the plug. And whatever people think about this, Hugh, whether they think it's right or wrong, I've always thought that Graham, I was never an advocate of a... A pragmatic, cautious manager where most teams that are successful in Europe are playing a very attack-minded game, which sh- surely wasn't the case at Chelsea. You know, just look at their numbers. You, you, thought
0: look at Potter was a, you thought Potter was a pragmatic, cautious manager?
1: Of course I do. I've just said it. I mean, Hugh, just look at the goals for column. That tells you enough. Forget about the points. Look at the goals for column. It's, it's ridiculously low. Brighton have outscored Chelsea by a mile. So have Brentford outscored Chelsea. You can't be managing a, a club of that stature and have such a... a look, I mean, was it like nine clean sheets at home under Potter? I mean, come on. It's, it's just nowhere near good enough. And I'd love to back Graham Potter and say, sit here and go, do you know what, opportunity English manager, there's been very few over those few decades that have had this chance to manage a big football club. It's like I said this in in an article uh, in the paper today where sometimes clubs, big clubs, sign players who've scored a lot of goals at mediocre clubs. They've done brilliantly well. You bring them to the club and they're not quite good enough and everybody around them knows they're not good enough and that can be the same for a manager. You walk into a club, yes, you've done well at Brighton. Are you the fit for Chelsea? And honestly, from the outside, I just feel... No chance. I didn't see how this was going to work. Forget about formations and players playing out of positions and uh, injuries and all these things. Chelsea have a squad to deal with anything. They have a number of players to fit many different positions.
0: So he deserved it in your uh, mind. That's absolutely absolutely clear. And the reason for for why now is you, you imagine the hierarchy at the clubs got together had a conversation uh, probably over the international break, come to this decision after the Everton draw, probably they were having strong conversations then. And then they've had the defeat at home to Aston Villa to, to back it up. And now they're in the bottom half. So of course, you know, with the distance to the top four, okay, yeah, you, you make the decision. Clear Lake Capital, Todd Bowley, the chairman, they make the decision to move on. But then you, you almost think they have to take responsibility for what's been happening at the club for the whole time. This is of their making. and And maybe... Listen, I, I maybe you know agree with what you're saying about Potter in terms of the output of the team just wasn't good enough, Tony. But ultimately, I think the club's taken themselves in this position. They got rid of Thomas Tuchel after a hundred days. They at the, the time they took over the club didn't have any of the major positions around the, the football club that they needed. So Todd Bowley was taking a huge amount of responsibility. This is a guy who owned a baseball club in the United States. We we know what they've done with the recruitment and you're starting to feel like he's the Elon Musk of football. Like he's taken over a business and he's got absolutely no idea how it works. And this is the end result. And in that way, I probably feel sorry for for Graham Potter. Do you have any sympathy for him very quickly, Tony?
1: Well, I don't like, I'm not going to sit. I don't like seeing managers lose their jobs because, you know, I've never been a coach and I always have a huge respect for people who get, his, get in these positions um, and then it doesn't work out for them. But the board can't sack himself. The owner can't sack himself. So what does he do? He has to take responsibility for the decision he made over Graham Potter and then tries to find the next manager that he will deem to be successful. That's not a guarantee either. But these people in positions of privilege, where they can go, well, it is my mistake, but I don't have to pay any price for that mistake. He does.
0: So you at least, you okay? So you at least feel that Top Bowley should take some responsibility.
1: Well, well, I'm sure he'd look and reflect back and go, "Well, I got that wrong." I mean, successful people do get things wrong. And they got it wrong in the Big Star, in my my opinion. I was always cautious about Graham Potter. I, I admired from the outside what he'd done at Brighton and thought fair play to him. And when he got the job, I thought, do you know what? I hope it goes well for him because there's a lot of managers who have gone from smaller clubs to big clubs and it hasn't panned out well for them. And I hope... hope there's another day when someone, if it's a Thomas Frank at Brentford or who's done brilliantly well, gets a big job or someone, you know, there's many of them, that if they get that chance, they can do really well in it. But he didn't. You cannot say that the job he did at Chelsea was worthy of any sort of success at all, in my opinion.
0: Uh, Alison, what do you think? Is is this the right time to make this decision? Because they could have made this decision several times already. And and then ultimately, I guess the success of it is going to be decided by who they appoint.
2: Well, I used a phrase, culture eats managers for breakfast, when I was writing a piece about what was going wrong and had been going wrong, wrong for a long time at Spurs. And similar things happened here. The culture has, has eaten Potter. It's also eaten Bowley, to be honest, because I think I think Todd Bowley thought oh, he could change the culture at the club, but it's proved too big for him. In ideal world, Bowley would have thought... I can handle Potter not being popular with the fans and taking his time to get to grips with a big job and a big squad because I'm changing the culture at this football club. Uh, This is not Roman Abramovich anymore. The players don't dictate what happens. Results don't dictate what happens. Uh, Noises from the stands don't dictate either. It's what I want to happen and I see a long-term plan here. I see a a club that's undervalued because it can have a bigger stadium. I'm going to big it. This is going to be a different club. And what he's found is what Chelsea have established in the Abramovich era cannot be dismantled. And he doesn't like, Todd Boakley doesn't like it when the fans leave early and boo the manager. And the football isn't great and it's disjointed. And presumably in all the conversations he had when he was wooing Graham Potter, it was about Potter. I bet you Potter would have used the word progress and building a lot. And he's not seen that. He's seen tinkering and a lack of a pattern and some panic measures as well. And probably seen a man out of his depth, having sort of too much choice. The, The pool of resources is enormous and has been compiled erratically so uh I think it was would have been a tough job for anyone, but he didn't he didn't have what it took growing Potter. So now what's happened is <laughs> what would have happened under the Abramovich era is that they they'll probably appoint someone who is the opposite of Potter and is packed with charisma and ego and European credentials some notches on his belt from big wins and they'll stutter through and possibly do okay in the Champions League. And then they'll spend a load of cash in the summer. And as long as the players are happy, they'll continue. And we won't be able to see much difference between what's happening under Abramovich and what's happening under the new ownership because the club currently, the culture of the club is bigger than one man's vision for how he might change it.
3: I think Alison's absolutely hit the nail on the head there. I think that the only way this could have ever worked is if the cultural reset that Todd Bowley spoke about was seen through. Or, in fact, his actions backed it up if, if he hadn't... Because he actually undermined Potter by bringing in all these players. Like, it didn't make his job easier. It made it harder. So, it, well, we always said at the start this was an odd fit, it could only have been the right fit if Chelsea were going to change. And as Alison said... It's proved too big a, a beast <laughs> to shift, basically, because of the legacy of, of Abramovich and because of what is expected at Chelsea and because of what is expected of a Chelsea manager too. Actually, for so many years, we've, as we've said many times, the Chelsea manager has been someone with a you know a real aura, a bit of edge, a winner. All these all these words, kind of steeliness, and that was not Graham Potter. Like Graham Potter has other attributes, and he could have perhaps developed those ones. But ultimately, it was a a very peculiar fit from the start, and the only way it would have worked is if Chelsea changed the way that Todd Bowley said they were going to, and they're not.
1: It's it's incredible, isn't it? Because it's a it sounds like a great idea, and like all ideas, they're great until they don't work, and then you've got a problem. You know, then you've got to look at within, you know, how this club has gone backwards. Uh, certainly this year, seeing them in mid table. I mean, you know, we're going to talk, I'm sure, about. Well, we might have time, I don't know, because there's so many sacking. You know, Liverpool, you know, would we be surprised if Jurgen Klopp lost his job tonight? You know, or after Tuesday night's game against Chelsea? Well, my answer would be, that would be no chance. That'd be nonsense. But just look at the history of sacking and how managers go so easily. This is not unthinkable or is an unthinkable thing that could happen? I mean, me and Alison who are both Liverpool fans. We're biting our nails and thinking, "What's the next port call?" Because as I look at the table, I think, "Well, could it be them? Could it be... Could it be the unthinkable? And Klopp, but he's got stripes and he's won things. Management is not a safe haven for anybody because once you lose enough games, you're sacked, and the idea changes. The one thing I would add is that I said this to Tony before we came on. I think we give.
3: People with money and have had success in business, too much credit. You know, they were it looked like they were they were trying to break football in their system and they're trying to, you know, go outside and spend ridic- obscene amounts of money on an, a ridiculous number of players, all young players with potential, in one in two transfer windows, and you're kind of looking around thinking, have they seen something here that we're not? But their tenure so far has been an absolute unmitigated disaster in every at every turn. Sack and Tuchel. Basically, all their work in the transfer window—it might, you know, even if half of it uh, turns out to be positive and, and uh, successful, that that would be a good, that would be a good ratio. But now they're sacking their second manager within a year. It's been a disaster so far—an absolute disaster. And any idea that we think they're they these are some geniuses who are going to come in and find a new way of operating football clubs—I think needs to be consigned to the dustbin
0: got to say, Tony, you know, in terms of the managers currently available, that's the only reason that I think maybe I wouldn't be surprised about Jurgen Klopp. And and it's maybe the reason that, you know, the answer to the question as to why now? Because actually, for me, and I've said this on the podcast before, I don't think many of these clubs are well served, or any of them really, by changing the manager with 10 or 11 games to go. Like, we'll talk about Crystal Palace a little bit later on. They obviously won the game against Leicester by sacking Vieira, bringing in Hodgson. We'll talk about Leicester too, who've got rid of... Brendan Rodgers. But again, I I don't see how, and even Chelsea, their seasons turn around drastically by sacking their manager at this point in time. Because, you know, if there's to be a big change in terms of how you're playing, the players are going to have to take on some new ideas Mm. in a very short space of time. And if you're, you know, if the key to the season is to beating Real Madrid over two legs, you know, I, I just don't see how it happens, and even if it does, let Chelsea go on to win the Champions League. So I don't see the season turning around drastically, even though they've made this change, which is why, for me, I would have given Potter till the end of the season, just to see if there was some magic, to see if you could turn what seemed to be a very bad decision into possibly a good one. Because I don't think these coaches become bad coaches overnight, and I don't think Graham Potter is now a bad coach, despite the fact that, as we reflected at the time, the Chelsea job may have been a step too far uh, for him, that is when he got the job, of course. Uh, and listen, just reflecting on Liverpool and, and Klopp, Nagelsmann's available, Enrique, Zidane, Pochettino, Conte. You know, maybe some of the bigger clubs are now twitching a little bit just because of the prospect of losing one of those managers, one of those highly respected managers. You know, it might be too much for them. So I think they maybe think, look, let's get into the market now. Let's change the manager. What you know, while we can, before one of these names has gone somewhere else.
2: But Hugh, you mentioned, you just said maybe the owner should have waited to the end of the season and hoped for a bit of magic. Can can you say, hand on heart, you can picture the scene where Graham Potter is in a meeting with Todd Bowley and exhibits the sort of magic and strength of personality that would make you think, oh, I'm going to stick with him? That's, no, not, but, what but, gonna, that's it, not what you're going. That's not what you're going
0: to. I mean, you. It's. We I, all agree. It's it on personality. It's not about him as a person. If if the results turn around, if Chelsea go out and win nine of the last ten games, and there's a positive factor in the stadium and, and at the club, and the players seem happy, and they suddenly, you know, and they start playing a good style of football, you know, that is what I would have wanted to see if I was Todd Bowley in the Chelsea board before the end of the season from Graham Potter for us to think he's the manager going into next season. You know, personalities, everyone's different. You know, yeah. ultimately, we you know, we, we make a lot out of it, don't we, in terms of well, um, you know, some of the big figures in sport. But ultimately, if your team goes out there and wins every week, it doesn't really matter what you like.
1: Something was struck me Saturday watching Aston Villa versus Chelsea, it felt like Unai Emery knew exactly what Chelsea were about He knew how to stop them. He made sure that they defended quite deep and let Chelsea not penetrate them at all and knew that they would catch Chelsea on the break. And it felt like, as I'm watching the game, I'm thinking Unai Emery looks a far more accomplished manager knowing how Villa are playing to what Chelsea are trying to do. And it was obvious during the game.
0: But Tony, I'm not saying that Graham Potter was doing well at Chelsea. This is not me saying that he deserved to continue in the role. This is me saying that at this point... I would have sacked him earlier. He could have got sacked a number of times, yeah. as I mentioned. But at this point, I don't see another manager coming in and drastically changing Chelsea's season, which is why, having spent £20 million to get him out of Brighton, me on the board, I would have just said, well, look, just give him the until the end of the season. Exactly. It's highly yeah. unlikely we'll win the Champions League. Highly unlikely we'll qualify for the Champions League through the league position. So all we can do is see if there is something there. And if there is something there that maybe we can hold on to going into next season, he might get an opportunity to continue in the role. But obviously, if he doesn't show us that, he will have to go. Because at this point in time, look, we all see it. Chelsea are not playing well enough. There are more successful managers or managers that are doing better in in, in their clubs in the Premier League right now. It's undeniable. This is not me saying Graham Potter was doing a great job at Chelsea or deserved to go on for longer. But it's me saying, unless you're getting one of those other big-name managers then why do it now? And ultimately, for me, it has to be that reason. It has to be that they've had conversations behind the scenes with whoever the, the next target might be, and they're feeling like the, the, the manager that they want could be off the market if they don't strike now. I don't mean- Why wouldn't you have sacked Graham Potter earlier? You know, it, has, it isn't suddenly the Aston Villa result that's making you think, right, okay, now this is the final straw. They drew with Everton at home. So for me, that's a worse result, by the way, than losing to Villa at home. Yeah, well, Everton in the relegation zone at the time.
1: Hugh, there could have been a number of times, and certainly under Abramovich, he would have well been gone. And look, gratefully, for, for him, thankfully, he was given a lot more time. But there comes a time you have to make a call. And it isn't about just a new manager coming in. It's about what is going to happen between now and the end of the season? Do we believe he can get us through a Champions League tie that can enable us to get Champions League football next year if we can get to the final and win it? Now, if they don't believe that and they think they're going to have more downsides and ups, then they're going to get rid of him. Why did Aston Villa get rid of Steven Gerrard? Because they believed the plan was going wrong and they needed someone different. Why did Everton get rid of Frank Lampard? And likewise... The, Clubs look for solutions if they believe the man at their helm is not going to deliver what they're hoping for. Yeah, but why Why appoint Graham Potter in the first place if,
3: what, seven months down the line, you're at a point where in the quarterfinal of the Champions League, you feel you need to win the Champions League to, to save your season, I, I, save your season, Gregor. and save your future? That's what makes this so ridiculous. Like, Gregor. The, Those two decisions, in the space of seven months or whatever it is, are so contrasting that it's like, that's why ultimately the, the biggest worry for Chelsea now should not be who the next manager is. It should be who's owning their
1: football club now. I just want to say on that, I don't think that would have happened if Chelsea were in the top four fighting for that spot. Absolutely not. Uh, no, exactly. The reason they they are sitting 11th in the Premier League so, so there is another issue. It's not just this Champions League cup tie. I think if they were sitting in the top four and they were looking okay, quite comfortable, and the side were playing well enough, and the fans weren't getting so disgruntled, Potter would not have lost his job. But once you're eleventh in the Premier League, that compounds everything. It's not just the Champions League game. It's about how their season has no,
3: gone. No, but I agree. They 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 see that they probably see. That the only way of saving their season and actually is reaching that? the Champions League is by winning it, which mm. in itself is ludicrous.
1: Yeah.
3: I, I'd be very surprised to win the, the Champions League. They're there the are dice.
2: several reports I think Tom Roddy also said it for us. There are several reports that Potter won't receive a full payout as compensation, which would imply that this idea that he had uh, he convinced Todd Bowley that he was there to make Slow, steady progression and build something for the future wasn't deemed to be part of going um, bottom half of the table. So that he was able to be sacked if they dip below a certain point. So they, I think Potter and Bowley both thought slow progress would be acceptable if you're in the top half of the table, but if you if you were to drip drop below that, that was for both of them no, 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 this is going wrong. Otherwise, he would get a full payout. Do you see where I'm going with that one? Mm.
1: Yeah, exactly.
3: Look, it's a steep learning Alison, curve to... for them. It's been a very steep learning curve for, for Todd Bowley and, and Clearlake. And amidst, you know, all the disappointment of what the season has turned out like for Chelsea, as I was a Chelsea fan, my biggest worry would be that you have these guys who don't have a clue what they're doing at the, at the helm of the
0: football club. Alison, I want to come to you on that. Um, where next for both parties? Where next for Chelsea? Where next for Graham Potter?
2: <laughs> Immediately, everyone said, oh, well, Pop Potter's, you know, very, very likely now to join Leicester, which is partly because of his accent. You know, he's <laughs> his Midlands voice will sit very nicely at a Midlands club. It's just a cosier enterprise, isn't it, with, with lower expectations. Uh, so I imagine he he ought to take a break, to be quite honest, because he's uh, there are all those memes of him looking quite unwell as as the weeks have passed at Stamford Bridge for him. But for Chelsea, the culture has won. They will go for someone who is the opposite. And this happens anyway, doesn't it? As soon as a manager is sacked, you can bet the person who replaces them is very different, is the other end of the spectrum. So they will go with somebody possibly like Nagelsmann simply because he's by all accounts, you know, very confident to the point of arrogant, uh highly ambitious not afraid to talk about quick-fix solutions where Potter was someone who wanted evolution. So in I don't know if Nagelsmann would feel it was right for him to join right now rather than work in a pre-season, but he's the type of man I think Chelsea will now want because this has been a big experiment that's gone badly wrong and they'll have looked to what the history of Chelsea demands and has, you know, it, the proof's there. If you go short term with your managers, people with experience, charisma, confidence and the, in, the ability to inspire players, you'll you'll get that short term hit they need, which is to, at this stage, I think you're right here. They have to win the Champions League. Otherwise, they're not, they're not going to be in European football next season. So that, that'll be what they're looking for. And that's why Nagelsmann is top of most bookies lists.
1: And let, let's face it, he got sacked when his Bayern Munich team beat PSG home and away to go through. So it sort of adds, well, probably that's one of the most unfairest sackings of, of the season at Bayern Munich where a guy's got through to the, the next round of the Champions League then lost his job. I mean, we're yeah, talking won about... every
0: game in the Champions League exactly. this season.
1: So it's yeah. like, well, we, we're saying about Graham Potter's, you know, somewhat, you as you're saying, Hugh, might be a little bit unfortunate. Well, Nagelsmann, that's another level completely.
0: There's part of me that thinks, we're going to talk about Rodgers later. There's a there's a job at Spurs going, and it, it's not where Leicester is, obviously. It's a club with high aspirations. Is it more of a fit than, say, a Leicester for someone like Graham Potter? Graham Potter was meant to be destined for the top. Now, obviously, I think there's reports that he actually turned down the opportunity to go to Spurs previously. Could that count against him? But I do think, You're right, Alison, maybe take a break, but I wouldn't just take a job lower down the league to get back into work and take the pressure off because I think that would signal to a lot of people that Graham Potter is what they thought he was and that's not the manager for the big time. I think for me, it would have to be that Europa League type club and maybe Leicester City is that at the moment it doesn't feel like that but maybe they are that Um well definitely one maybe, that's got uh, their
3: Premier League status assured as well like I would personally wait until the end of the season because it's going to be mm. tight and Leicester are very much one of those clubs who, you know, you could if you join Leicester and took them down then
0: crikey, that's all that is I do want to give some positive credit as uh, our friend Tom Clark would want me to do to Aston Villa Um, because we're going to be answering questions about Chelsea, I'm sure, for the next few podcasts. But, um, you know, that final match in charge, Chelsea had 25 shots, eight on target. Villa had five attempts, two on target. And yet I think they do deserve credit for not necessarily just the victory over Chelsea, but how they've played of late. 26 points they've got in 14 games under Unai Emery. And that is only bettered by the top, three really, or now three of the top four, Arsenal and the two Manchester clubs. So it's been significant uh, what Unai Emery has done. And in that case, again, was it that surprising a result? Uh, Gregor, I'll come to you on this.
3: It wasn't a surprising result. Um, I I I have been surprised by, actually surprised to find that Villa are still in with a shout of kind of, are actually in with a shout of making European football. That's kind of crept up on me. I know that when you when you see the stories of Brentford and Brighton this year, even Fulham until their little uh, stumble in the last few weeks, it seems like that was going to be a step too far. And Unai Emery even th- th- sp- uh, said that too. Said they, the target this year is top ten, and then we, we look forward. But on this current trajectory, then they've got a chance as well. And it's like it's just the effect he's had on on individuals and the sort of team as a collective has been it's been pretty remarkable. They look much more solid defensively. He's finding a way to get the best out of players in midfield and Ollie Watkins up front. Uh, Buendia has been much improved. McGinn, they kind of play a funny system where it's like a 4-4-2, but then the two wide players, often McGinn and Ramsey, play sort of inverted. They come inside a little bit. So it's a very narrow 4-4-2, almost like a diamond sometimes. And it's really getting the best out of out of all the players at his disposal. McGinn was outstanding in this game, which I was pleased to see. And
1: yeah, I think his his impact has been, been brilliant. I'd add to that as well, Hugh, on McGinn. Stephen Gerrard, when he had him at his football club, it was really weird watching John McGinn. I've always really liked him as a player. Incredible ability to get forward, drive forward. And get goals. He's certainly got goals for Scotland and watching him for Villa. and he, He's got a nice trio in midfield, as Gregor was talking about. If you put Douglas Luiz, who likes to be the holding player and allow Ramsey and McGinn to get forward. Ollie Watkins is in fine fettle at the moment. He makes great channel runs. Villa can stretch teams. And then once you stretch teams, Wendia comes into play because he can find himself a bit of space. And you've got to say, the turnaround has been incredible. If there ever, ever was a reason to sack a manager and get a new one in, this was it.
0: Yep, I, I think I agree with you, Tony, on that one. I, it's a bad, another bad weekend for Chelsea, but I did see a lot of Chelsea fans kind of reflecting that now's the time to, to move forward positively, start getting wins back on the board. And for Villa, a way of climbing up the table, it's clear in, in terms of how they play, and they should be delighted in the appointment that they made with Unai Emery. Yeah, it's bringing them results. So yeah, positivity for Villa, not quite for Chelsea. I'm going to be... Really intrigued to see how things develop with Chelsea over the next week or two. And, of course, we will be dissecting all of it here on the Game Podcast. Uh, We'll come to the other managerial sacking and managerial sackings generally a little bit later. Um, I did want to stay towards the top of the table with our next topic, though. Manchester City, I mean, it was a huge game this weekend, maintaining the pressure on the Premier League leaders, Arsenal. They kind of shrugged off the absence of Erling Haaland, outclassing Liverpool. It was a great display at the Etihad Stadium and finished 4-1 scoreline that we weren't really expecting. Elsewhere of course Arsenal cruising to victory over Leeds. They made it seven wins in a row in the Premier League to maintain their eight-point advantage at the top. Gregor, Manchester City are, were kind of bringing brimming with confidence in this game but how surprising was the result for you?
3: It wasn't surprising that City won but the the kind of extent to which it's now clear that City are miles ahead of this Liverpool team. was was still quite startling. Just the kind of their energy and 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 drive, and right from the whistle. I mean, Jack Grealish was running it uh, uh, to Alexander Arnold and and Liverpool's back four from the off, and he was outstanding. Uh, Marais on the other side as well. Liverpool's full-backs looked at sea, all at sea. De Bruyne was on song. Uh, Alv- you know, obviously No Haaland Alvarez came in and his link up play for uh, for Gundogan's goal. I think that was the third. was superb. He's not just a number nine as well. He's a player who can can drop in and link up play brilliantly. So, like City were were absolutely on song. The goal that they scored, the goal that Alvarez scored, was like a peak City goal, wasn't it? The way that they kind of moved the ball across the pitch out to out to Grealish, a little bit of interplay, and then a ball across six yard box tapping. You think when City score goals like that, they are really on song. But from Liverpool's point of view, it's getting really really concerning now. It's got to be, you know, Klopp again coming out saying basically things that you seen are impossible, that they can't happen it's like a broken record, there's no solutions they're at a massive crossroads because he, there's things that, that we've spoken about for a long time about their, their issues in midfield you know, they need to strengthen at the heart of defence but now, as I say, both fullbacks don't look like the same players Trent Alexander-Arnold for, for Grealish's goal for the fourth was just played around and like his body language was was atrocious and he didn't chase back in they look like a shadow of their former selves, and increasingly, it's creeping up on me that it feels like this is the beginning of the end for Jurgen Klopp.
0: I'm not sure about that. Um, <laughs> just I just feel if you
3: look at the even the it's a it's an overhaul they need now. It's like a yeah. a huge juncture, and a lot of the people, even uh, at boardroom level. Uh, you know, people like Michael Edwards have left. A lot of the people who've made the decisions that brought Liverpool to the the level they were at, to hit the scale, the great heights, are no longer there. And Jurgen Klopp, like, it feels like a lot more of the responsibility for this overhaul is on Jurgen Klopp's shoulders. And I just feel like he's not getting a reaction from the players consistently mm. over the season. I know that happened once before, and they turned it around and they changed things. A couple of big signings too, obviously, before they won the title, made a huge difference, but. I feel this is a little bit different. It looks like there's players who are just... They don't have the same energy levels too and the question is whether that is going to be a permanent state or whether it's something that can be rectified with, I don't know, a rest in the summer. But I'm not sure.
1: That's the only weapon he's got left is the transfer market for me, Jurgen Klopp, is this summer. As a, as a fan... I'm huge concerns and everything. Gregor, Gregor said there, I echo. I mean, watching Andy Robertson, who played brilliantly for Scotland in midweek, weren't sure he should have played because I just felt tough ask up against Mares, and you know, could he come off the back of a really tough night that Scotland had? And he was, his energy was exceptional. Um, Trent, bigger decision than anyone at the football club. The idea of when when he was brilliant and winning and been making passes and creating goals and being fantastic and you're winning you you know winning the Champions League and you're winning the Premier League, great. You can you can suffer what Trent does sometimes off the ball. I've seen him in the centre forward position for the fourth goal where he basically made a run and stayed in that position, then just about got himself back and then, as Gregor said, got played around. I think Trent's one you've got to call on. You've got to go. Do you know what? Time, If we can move him on and get decent money, I'd do that with Trent. Because one thing you can't have, and Greg has been a fullback, if you can't do what is your first port of call for me is defend who you're up against. Jack Grealish loved it. He was enjoying every set. give me the ball, keep giving me the ball while this guy's trying to ch- trying to get it off me i'll have it in every position. Just keep feeding me. He had the, his favorite have you probably asked him his most favorite afternoon of the season so far it had to set up against Trent well Trent's had a few of them against him this year. Uh, And as good as he is going forward, he cannot defend like that, uh, Hugh. Honestly, what I witnessed Saturday was a continuation that I saw against Napoli in the Champions League. I saw against Brentford. I've seen it so often that Klopp has to make a call on that right back.
2: One concern I have is that the history of Klopp's management at Liverpool has been of reassuring the players he has that they can overcome obstacles and hiccups so when they lost the Champions League final to Real Madrid he was brilliant at reassuring the team that they were they were the best and they could keep going and silverware was around the corner and to just miss out on the title don't worry guys I believe in you and they they rose to that style of management a sort of Slightly paternalistic, very intense, you know, will do anything for Klopp. He's such a good fit for the club. It was like being in a family um, with a devoted dad almost. That was the feel of it. And what's happened this season is that there have been several performances where Liverpool have responded to that and they've come out and they've done something amazing, you know, 7-0 7-0 against Manchester United and you think wow when it clicks and when he's reassuring the players that they haven't lost that you don't lose your abilities overnight class is permanent chaps we can do this and that has reinforced the idea that what might be wrong isn't too serious they just need to gel again and have belief again but unfortunately the dips keep coming back so it's like, in that's a sort of like a one season example of Klopp's whole approach to his loyalty almost. So I think I don't want him sacked. And he, I think me and Tony both believe he's earned the right to be given the chance to put this right in the summer. But, um, if I have a concern, it's whether he's, Klopp is ruthless enough to make the changes he would need. And I think it must be really hard when you look at some of what Liverpool have achieved under Klopp and some of the performances, it's not just they're not a team of one things or impressed uh, through pragmatism or being solid. They're huge entertainers. A lot of people have said to me, you know, I'm not a Liverpool fan, but I love watching Liverpool. I think Liverpool are my second team. They're just so great to watch, and isn't Klopp lovely? And and that's been that that's happened because he's built this this sort of great atmosphere and bought into the city and it, it's felt right so he's gonna have to be quite horrible to people <laughs> and dump people and tell them they're not good enough and switch things around and that's a really hard thing to do I, I don't even know if he's that kind of guy to be honest
1: Al could you answer what I try to attempt to answer is what you do with Trent and Van Dyke
2: well, I think that's 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 sort of what I'm saying, mm. Tony. Is that they've both been, both of them have been. There was a time when, if you were saying who are the best, who are the best fullbacks in the Premier League era, Trent was the first name on your lips. And if you were saying who's the defender who's made the most impact at any Premier League Premier League club, you'd have said Van Dyke. Do you remember how mm. much we've lauded both those players? Yeah, absolutely over the seasons. And so there's a sense of They've not become rubbish. Players don't become rubbish, and I can see why Klopp probably feels it's his responsibility to make sure they stay fantastic. But they're both very different cases. Van Dyke simply hasn't been the same since his ACL, old. and that's just that's just unfortunate. That's a that's a sad thing that can happen to somebody. But there is always the possibility that you can return to your full greatness after an operation like that. And I dare say Klopp's thinking it's going to be tomorrow and then it doesn't happen. And he thinks, well, then it'll be tomorrow. Trent is a completely different set of circumstances. He clearly is a has a style, a defensive style that works when the team are functioning to 98 to 100% level. And when they're not, he's, he's lost. He's at sea and he looks... he he looks stupid. He looks like he's in the wrong place because, but he's been trained, you know, he's, he's been trained. All he knows is the Klopp way. And if Klopp's not telling him to do things differently, he won't. And if Klopp's trying to change him, that'll be tough for him because he knows one way of playing, which is the heavy metal football way. So I don't think they're similar, but Liverpool haven't looked better with them both out the team either. That's the other thing. It's not as if you could say, "Oh, when they weren't playing, Liverpool suddenly looked great." Some of the best performances this season have been when they're both on the pitch. So, I'm loath to point the finger at two defenders.
3: (laughs) (laughs) They're being exposed more often as well. That's the thing you have to say. Like, it's not just there. It's you know part of it's systemic and part of it's about the lack of energy they have in midfield compared to. Previous iterations of this team, but when at what point does Klopp do something about that? That's what I'm I'm kind of saying. Like he just keeps saying the same things that are that it's impossible. It's impossible to leave that much space. It's impossible to see this. Like that can't happen. Well, you need like at some point the manager has to do something to correct those problems because when you leave your back four so exposed and when your right back can't defend one v one. When, as we have said, Van Dijk is not quite the same athlete, and he's been asked to turn and run towards his own goal all the time because he's so exposed. Sometimes you could point to the, to, the, to the man who's playing alongside him, but not now. They've got their Kanati's fit. He's he, this is their best back four, and they're still exposed. Like the manager needs to do something about that now, and that might be changing the way that Liverpool play.
0: They were way off it in this game, particularly the second half. Decent nugget from Bill Edgar in his column today. Uh, Liverpool are the first team since Birmingham City in 1905-06 to win a top-flight game by at least seven goals and then lose their next three matches in all competitions. Uh, Jürgen Klopp's side, eight points off third and fourth, um, both Newcastle and Manchester United on the same number of points. Does anyone feel that Liverpool can still make the Champions League? In a word, Allison.
2: I would have said yes <laughs> yesterday, and now I'm not so sure. But heck, you know, Europa League can be fun.
0: Tony?
1: I would have said no yesterday and definitely <laughs> no today.
0: <laughs> Gregor? No. Right, very quickly, I want to reflect on um, Jack Grealish's performance for Manchester City because he was excellent throughout the game. I know uh, Look, there were some contentious uh, moments in the game as well. Some felt Rodri should have seen a second yellow card. Uh, Guardiola celebrating as well or at least trying to with Liverpool's players Um, and I know the celebration police were out in force once again for me that was kind of on the side of you know not very nice to the Liverpool players what was Guardiola expecting them to do so I I think we'll part those for one uh, moment anyway at least if not completely but um, Jack Grealish fantastic Gregor
3: Yeah I mean Paul Hurstbys today he was kind of uh, outlining how they feel Manchester City feel that he can almost have the same sort of decisive effect as De Bruyne has for Manchester City in, in games. And you look at that and you think, I'm not sure about that. But on this evidence, you kind of think there is probably more to come from him. There was something about his start as well. And he won, I think he won two fouls in quick succession. I think You know, maybe a tangle with Fabinho for one. And it used to be that when he was at Villa, it was like all the fouls he won bought Villa time. It was like they could take a breath. It was almost a defensive tactic. Now for City, it's like it riles up the whole Etihad. It gets like it puts the opposition on the back foot. It's because they're playing in such a direct style of football, and he's getting he's getting the ball and being asked to run at players every time he buys a foul like that, and he does it so well, it energizes City. It seems, but he was just he's just so difficult to to win the ball off. Basically, he's so good at getting his body between the defender and. and uh, and the ball and riding challenges can go inside or outside. He's now getting really good at linking up that kind of fast play that that you have to be able to to do as a city forward to be able to link up really quickly on the edge of the box. And he's now been able. He's now starting to do that as well. So yeah, he's these. This is the best kind of form i have seen. Uh, Jack Grealish. His
2: Manchester body language wasn't his his body language and his whole demeanour spoke of some sort of shift to me. I mean he he was he was um joking with the fans, you know, during the game. He looked like he felt he belonged the that weight of having that 100 million price tag on him looked to have dissipated completely. He looked like someone who was incredibly comfortable within a setup that I think is really tough for players because Guardiola is so demanding and doesn't like and doesn't really like egos to shine. Uh, and I just thought he was irrepressible and he looked happy and it felt like a, a key moment in his career to me.
1: Well, I would, I would add in uh, Madison playing for England in midweek and obviously Jack got left out and then had a bit of a cameo role in the game. And then he's got the opportunity to play against Trent and Liverpool. And Trent is in some ways a perfect fullback for him because of the way Trent will like to get forward. I always feel Jack's, you know what he wants. He wants the ball to feet all the time. And there is times he will run behind. But generally, he'll go, as, you know, Allison and Gregor have alluded to, he'll take the ball in any position. He'll go inside, he'll go either way. And that's his strength. But he finally feels like... He's the fittest I've ever seen him, by the way, as well. I mean, that run that Gregor mentioned in the, in the early part of the game where he's tracking back and, you know, seeing him there is it, it, weird in itself because he broke his backside to get there the fans applauded him, you know, and it was something very different from what we know as a talented footballer. And I do like to think that some players mature and grow up a slightly, and I think Jack has since he's been at City. And also, he's found himself now in a position where it's, you know, it could have been Foden without his injury, you know, or say his appendix operation. But he knows that England, Man City, is always a challenge just to be in the team. So his standard has to be exceptionally high. I just thought, and, and I don't want to take anything away from Jack Grealish because he was superb and has been playing well now for for quite a while for City. But that Liverpool right area was perfect for him to expose and he did.
0: Thought you had a great game, to be perfectly honest. Thought Manchester City were absolutely sensational. Uh, and it was a big result from the weekend. And we've got a lot more to get through. Uh, coming next, we'll talk about Manchester United's defeat to Newcastle. Brendan Rodgers being sacked by Leicester as well. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Uh, in the meantime, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Just hit that bell, the notification button, and you will not miss an episode. Well, after Manchester United's defeat to Newcastle, their players held a dressing room inquest, we're told, after their manager, Eric Ten Hag told them that they lacked maturity and desire during their 2-0 defeat. The home side had 22 shots, Manchester United only had six, Newcastle in control long before the second half goals from Joe Willock and Callum Wilson, which actually saw Newcastle go above Manchester United in the table and into third on goal difference. Eric Ten Hag, very clear. He felt the game was decided, basically, by Newcastle's greater determination, aggression and desire. For me, generally speaking, not to dwell on it too much, it's just a reminder that we were maybe too quick to exalt Manchester United. Um, They've now dropped points in six of their last nine Premier League games and ultimately it boils down for, to me for a lack of depth. I know people will say United are more than good enough to go to Newcastle and put in a better performance. Yes, generally speaking, they are to put in a better performance. But in terms of their season generally staying at the level that it was at, to lose Ericsson to injury, to lose Casemiro to two red cards and double suspension that's seen him miss a lot of this period, it, it's very clear that those that come in behind them, you know, lack the same quality. And it leaves the team, particularly Casemiro's absence, looking very disjointed. Uh, So Newcastle, for me, very worthy winners. And Manchester United, a reminder to the fans and and the board, they've still got a long, long way to go. Do you agree? Tony Cascarino.
1: Are you working on a political show here? you? (laughs) (laughs) You should be lambasting your team. The team that you support were awful. You know, we've just, I've certainly dug out Liverpool and, you know, some of the things that happened in that game. Man United was second best in every department yesterday. Every one. And there was every right they should have had a two-hour meeting because Eric Hag must have been furious of what he saw. I saw one team that was totally committed in every position. Defensively, they were far superior than Man United. Midfield, Gamirez was unbelievably good yesterday. And then you look at the forwards, is that? Causing problems. You know, you think Isaac's at Newcastle and you've got Vegels at Man United. There's not even a comparison between the two players. United were second best in every department. Hunger, sweat, blood, everything that Newcastle gave was exceptional yesterday. And Newcastle uh, sorry, and Man United didn't like it. And they didn't like it when Anthony was laying on the floor. Every time Dan Byrne rattled him, because Dan Byrne, by the way, rattles everybody, mm-hmm. but he does love taking out wingers. Every time Anthony got rattled by him he instead of trying to do the right thing and try and get past him or just he ended up getting involved with him and that's exactly what Dan Byrne wanted Uh, I thought United was so poor yesterday Hugh
0: they were Tony but um you've got to understand it's not that I'm a politician or I'm trying to be diplomatic (laughs) um you know I I don't know if you guys remember everything that I've said about Manchester United for a, a long period of time
1: I'll, I'll How can I credit. change
0: my view on that? I, I I hate to say I told you so, but I you know people were messaging me about this podcast saying that when Man United were playing well that that I was too negative about them or that I didn't give them enough compliments, and I've maintained throughout that Manchester United were having a good period, which we've seen before under other managers, and ultimately the vast majority of this squad are the same players that we've seen at times in matches do exactly what we saw against Newcastle United this weekend. They aren't as good as what people have been making out. I've maintained that throughout, Tony. So what do you want me to say? What reaction do you want me to have? I've just seen the same players who've lost a number of managers their jobs, who for me are not elite footballers. Most of them are not top level. And this is people say, why do you mention that? Because they're very, very good players. Yes, they are. But for me as a Manchester United fan, this is a club that I want to see back, challenging for Premier League titles and Champions League titles. And 90% of that squad are never going to be good enough to do that, in my opinion. I don't think that's
3: I don't think 90% is overdoing it, but I think you're right that there's enough players who have it, with, we've seen it over a number of years, have it within them to dip so far below their standards, their best standards, to make it impossible for Manchester United to be consistently good enough to to compete for anything more than the top four just now. And even actually you see now when someone who does have that mentality, that elite mentality, because it's actually mentality more than you know ability, I would say you, when you see someone like Casemiro who has that and he's not there and his effect, not just on the team, like as a player, as part of the team, as a functioning part of the team, but as a kind of presence in the team, it's extraordinary. So I think, I think your response is, is about right. It's, it's like it shouldn't become as much of a surprise. I think anyone who who was speaking about uh, dynasties being formed when they won the, the Carabao Cup should have a long, hard look at themselves now because, and there was a lot of them, because while Ten Hag has made real progress, like undoubted progress, and they have a good manager, they still don't, as you say, have the squad that's ready to compete with the best in the country and Europe.
2: Isn't it a bit worrying though that, but, <laughs> I, I, this doesn't happen often, that a big, at a big club, you get the players admitting their attitudes wrong, and then you and get often Luke Shaw. Man-
3: yeah. <laughs> it is often but Luke yeah. Shaw. He's yeah. the one who comes out, and he's a little too honest. And actually, yeah, often he's maybe. the one who's. But he, no.
2: but yeah. he was. He. I don't think we can doubt that he's speaking on behalf. He feels he's speaking on behalf of all the players. That's how he phrased it, anyway. And then you have the manager Ten Hag going on various media outlets saying the players really were dreadful because their attitude was wrong. So if the players know their attitudes wrong and the manager knows their attitudes wrong, then how do you fix that? I mean, that, that's a bit odd. I mean, a lot of people were saying, Oh, you know, Ten Hag shouldn't, shouldn't throw his players under the bus. That's, that's, you know, that's terrible, but they, they threw themselves under the bus as well. So Mm. I think they've clearly got an issue with going away from home against the bigger clubs. And that, isn't very Man United at all. The, the Man United I grew up with is one that actually relished going away from home and playing a team that was on a roll or had a reputation or, you know, was level with them in terms of competing for whatever spot and making, if necessary, making the game, you know, being frustrating, making the game dour and just getting a goal on the break and sort of spoiling the party, they did I, it was just it, this is but they this united don't seem to be up for difficult moments and if ten hag is blaming the players and the blame, players are blaming themselves i don't know where you go with that
0: see Al, you get rid if, of them get rid of them allison <laughs> well it's a three year for me it process, was a three yeah. year process from the start i wanted to see an incremental step we've seen a good step in the first season as gregor points out For me, there is another two seasons, another at least four windows for this squad to be overhauled for us to take, in my opinion, Manchester United really seriously. Sorry, Tony.
1: I I want to ask you and well, ask everybody this. You know, the new deal for Luke Shaw that's on the table, I think he's already signed. Marcus Rashford has been promised a new deal. Does that excite you as a Man United fan? Or would you think, I mean, Marcus looks so... Off his game on on Saturday. Uh, which oh, come on, Tony. He's had an unbelievable. I, I know season, he has. Though. He's had an unbelievable season. And Shaw's had his
3: best season for Manchester United too. So um,
1: okay, okay.
3: Let's
0: be, but let's be clear on this. Let's I, be clear. Listen, yeah. I've said it a number of times. All of my friends, every time they have a good game, the phone is pinging off. Luke Shaw had a great game. Marcus Rashford had a good game. Are you going to eat your words? I'm happy to publicly maintain <laughs> my views on both of these players. Rashford, I absolutely love. If Man United are going to do the things that I mentioned before, win Premier Leagues and win Champions Leagues, I, st- I still don't think Marcus Rashford will be in the best eleven. But you would have him at the you, club. You can at me at that. I'd absolutely have him at the club. That's him with Shaw. A big so that's, you know, that, that's, that's what... But, but Luke Shaw, for me, has done a four-year deal... I'm... I don't the really, asset. For, it's
3: like this is the way the world for, works now. Manchester yeah, United for, hoard players. Yeah, hold on but, to
0: the asset, but will he stay? Will he be in the best 11? That's up for debate. For, yeah. for me, it's not even that he's a bad player. It's that when we're talking about the culture at Manchester United that he's been a part of for such a long period of time, do I see that changing? Not really. When you keep these players, it's not, it doesn't mean that they're bad players. Some of it is just down to character, mentality. A lot of these guys have played in big key matches. For Manchester United and they haven't delivered they go through a good period and then people say they're at their back they're absolutely brilliant or they go off and play well for the country and we see it for a good three months we might see it for a good six months and then it disappears for a year and people go well they just need to get back to those six months and ultimately I'm absolutely tired of it and this is not off the back of, of one game they've both had very very good seasons if they stay at the club as a fan, okay, you're not going to be disappointed in that because they are obviously worse players who who could be at your club. But ultimately, as I say, if I'm a fan that thinks Manchester United can get back to the very highest level, then I think the squad needs to develop quickly and to a higher level than than what those players are on. Now, Rashford looks like he might be taking himself onto a higher level and we have to see how that develops over the next two years. But for me, overhaul of that squad is still so important. And I've included, again, many United fans will hate me for saying this, but the likes of Bruno Fernandes in that on a number of occasions. Anthony Martial, you know, I've had Manchester United fans last week saying, oh, Martial's back. Don't have to play Weghorst anymore. Fantastic. And I'm like, what what have you seen from Anthony Martial that makes you so confident that he's going to be, oh, well, a couple of seasons back, he scored 20-odd. All right, brilliant. Again, we saw it for a season. We saw it for 18 months. Then it disappeared. There are so many players in Man United that you can put in that category because ultimately Ed Woodward dished out some very big contracts. And we, these players are basically stuck at the club. And until, they, like I said, until 90% of them or 80 to 90% of them have moved on and really quality players have come into the Manchester United squad. I just don't see them really being consistent enough to be competing with the best clubs in the Premier League. That's that, what I was wanting me. from Hugh.
1: That's what I wanted—the real response. <laughs> How you feel? Not the but sort it, but, of. But Tony, I'm,
0: but Tony, I'm not angry about the result. <laughs> I'm not angry about the result. I went to the Carabao Cup final. We won't, We beat Newcastle two 0 I sat there and went. Man United weren't great today. If Newcastle really showed up, we wouldn't have won that game. Mm. You know, and and that's the thing. You know, we're talking about Man United going off and winning. You know, oh, could they win two cups? We're talking about Brighton in the FA Cup semi final, and I'm sitting there saying. Unless Man United really show up, Brighton will probably beat them. You know, they're still that team and, and for those it's, people, it's, quite, think, oh. it's,
3: it's there's great areas to this too though. You've got to give Ten Hag credit for getting more from these players fairly consi- more at consistently, consistently I mean, too over to the season. I don't blame No, the I, know, I know, I know, I know. But what all. I'm saying is your hope has to be that Ten Hag can get a bit higher levels. He's already improved, clearly heightened the standards and, you know, changed the sort of the culture if you want to use that club at the club. So You've got to hope that 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 can that can bring some of the, some of these players we're talking about onto their you know to to a level where they're playing at their best, the most consistent, most consistently on a regular basis. And if they're not, I agree with you. I think there's still a lot of players that need that have had far too long at Manchester United and they have proven that they've they've got games like this one in their locker.
0: Alison, I'll spare you the next question, Gregor. I'll come back to you on this one. Uh, just to praise Newcastle for a moment, uh, they're third in the table. One win in eight league games um, and now they've had three on the spin after that. It's a strong response after the disappointment in the Carabao Cup final as well and a big boost in terms of their top four hopes. How impressed were you by them? Hugely.
3: Look, Ten Hag was right. It was It was about hunger. You saw it from the very start. Newcastle were hungrier. They were roared on by a raucous crowd. They were absolutely in Manchester United's faces. They were pressing high. They were winning the ball back quickly. Manchester United were playing aimless, hope, you know, hopeful but forward balls that invariably Newcastle mopped up and went at them again. Uh, and they had so many chances in that first half. Willock's at the kind of like on the six-yard box, almost the goal begging to be out in front of him. He skied over the bar. You thought, oh my god, are they going to come to kind of to rue these misses? But they just kept going. and They kept going and. It, it could arguably have been more. I thought they were brilliant, and as you say, it has been a big response after the the, the disappointment of the cup final. Um, and even you look, Wilson back fit and kind of there's a comp, you know real competition for the for the the number nine shirt there. Coming on and scoring a goal, Isaac was was again impressive though. Before that, Anthony Gordon to come on and add a bit of kind of energy and Anderson in the in the second half. Their squad looks like. It's got enough to go close, absolutely, for the top four this year. So um, it's going to be fascinating between now and end of season. How uh, good was gimarash He's brilliant. Yeah, he's uh, energy brilliant. and
1: he's yeah. kind of nasty. He wants the ball as well. Yeah, but he also
3: takes risks as well. It's not just like getting the ball mm. and laying it off. He takes he takes risks about kind of first time passes. For, yeah, or like you know big switches of play, or like trying to play the ball through the lines. And he also like if. If sometimes it doesn't come off, then he's, he'll snap into the tackle to win it
0: back straight away again. He's got a bit of everything. I absolutely agree he was excellent. Right, let's move on to the uh, other managerial sacking in the Premier League this weekend. I was kind of more surprised by this one, I have to say. Leicester City sacking their manager Brendan Rogers after the 2-1 defeat to Crystal Palace. The club's board saying they were compelled to take alternative action to stay in the Premier League. It's a fifth defeat in six league games and it put Leicester into the relegation zone. Now, we know Rodgers was appointed in February of 2019 and he led them to a first FA Cup triumph in 2021. In a statement though, the club said, it has been our belief that continuity and stability would be key to correcting our course, particularly given our club's previous achievements under Brendan's management. Regrettably, the desired improvement has not been forthcoming. And with 10 games of the season remaining, the board is compelled to take alternative action to protect our Premier League status. Is this the right move from Leicester City? Alison?
2: Well, I was at Sallis Park on Saturday and therefore was not surprised, partly because of uh, Roger's demeanour after the game, partly because Leicester were absolutely shockingly awful. And then his demeanour after the game was one of someone who had either already been told he'd be on his way or was hoping he would be. He was an automaton. He did, ex- displayed no passion, emotion. It's not his style anyway. He's not one of those uh, managers who jumps up and down on the touchline, but he, he's checked, he'd checked out. The connection between him and the supporters had gone. Connection between him and most of the players has gone. Charlotte dunga who, who covers the Leicester patch for The Times, made the point today that it began unraveling when um Leicester lost to nottingham forest 4-1 last february february last year and then that's when rogers started saying he didn't have enough players that were any good and you sort of feel i think probably rogers wanted to build on that fa cup glory and be given money and he's sort of proven he's not someone that can manage a slightly depleted squad he he, he, he you know he, he he wanted money to build He's not someone who can make do and get through by just having, yeah, you know, great camaraderie and like like so many of the small smaller clubs who've done well this season. Then they're, they're not doing it with more resources than Leicester. They're doing it with excellent, imaginative coaching and fantastic team spirit and a plan. And there was no, there's no plan at Leicester. And if if it's that limp, you may as well get rid of him because. Almost anything's better than someone who, whose heart isn't in it anymore. I mean, we've, I think we've mentioned many times we feel he probably stayed in the job because they couldn't afford to sack him. But I think there was a genuine belief, at ownership level, that that you know they were delighted that he'd won the FA Cup and that he um, he is a good coach, and sort of felt it was impossible for it to go this wrong. But when I don't see you've got any choice when a manager looks that uninterested in. In what's going on. And it was it was awful. And he sort of made this sort of he sort of said, Oh, you know, it was unfortunate, a bit unlucky to lose, because it was um a last second goal. You you know, if you weren't there, you could say, Oh, that sounds unlucky. They were absolutely hammered by a Crystal Palace team that, you know, have been struggling all season. It was a proper proper nail in the coffin and he deserved to go. And it wasn't it was not surprising here.
0: I do feel I feel for him a little bit, maybe not in terms of his actual sacking, but in terms of how he's been spoken about today and in the aftermath of his sacking, because I know the Leicester fans would say the last 18 months, you know, Leicester have massively underperformed, if not been totally woeful. But during that time, there have been huge injuries. There's been very poor recruitment. There's been clear underinvestment given the financial situation at the club. There have been want-away players and there have been big players sold by the club as well. Very important players sold by the club and clearly at the same level, not replaced. So the idea that Rogers is solely to blame for those 18 months, I think is the, is the thing that maybe I feel is harsh for me because I still think he is a good manager. I think there's a chance he gets a better job with respect than Leicester city as well. And I wonder if actually Leicester city is an attractive job now for other managers, given, you know, they'll be looking on and seeing what's happened to Brendan Rogers because until those things are resolved, um, I think Leicester may stay in a similar position, and in the summer could easily lose some more of their best players. So, how so how much of this really? And and I take everything that you say on board, Alison, Is down to 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 Rogers' influence, if you like. What do you think, Gregor?
3: I absolutely agree. I think that there's a lot of context to be to be put, put into this because, and it's not been an easy job since you know, as we say, in like last summer they, they didn't seem. Didn't sign anyone. I think they signed a goalkeeper on like deadline day, but no investment whatsoever. And the problem is, has been every manager, every club, well, every manager certainly wants to be seen, wants to know that they can, they're going forward, they can see progression. And it was clear that they were going to be regressing. And I don't think he, as Alison sort of alluded to there, I don't think he really handled that very well. I think he spoke about that a lot. He, He constantly referenced back then about. We know the financial constraints. You know, It was like he was setting up for an excuse for the season. And I think probably that kind of seeps into the, the dressing room where there were other issues. As you say, there were players who were uh, unsettled, who might want to leave. There were players who were out of contract. And there are players probably who are thinking, we're only here because we're part of the furniture now. We're not, you know, not being able to sign anyone else. I think there's a lot of people who know they're not probably not a part of Leicester's future. Uh, I keep pointing to someone like Daniel Amarty who I don't know how he's still playing centre half for a team in the Premier League it's insane and they, as you say they had a lot of injuries to key players so there is some serious context but I think there's truth in what Alison was saying too in that Brendan Rodgers hasn't handled it well and he's not always projected a kind of a manager who actually is realistic about the situation they're in and they are in in the mire along with eight clubs, you know, you can throw a blanket over them with five points and this is just the latest of of like a series of really panicked decisions. These clubs cannot countenance the prospect of dropping into the Championship and Leicester in particular because of the extent to which they've had to try and cut their wage bill down recently and stay within financial fair play rules. So it's a, another panicked decision, but it might be the thing that changes the atmosphere of that little fraction and and secures their status.
0: 13 well, managerial changes in the hmm. Premier League this season. That is more than any other previous campaign. Why is that? And what does it say about the state of the league right now, Tony?
1: Well, it says there's an enormous amount of money. And that pie keeps getting spread out for everybody. Because, you you know, you think about it. And I had a chat with Gregor Fair about this, about... How is there a solution, find, try and find a solution for managed being sacked so readily and so often? You know, to see the numbers, which isn't just on the Premier League, you can look through the Championship as well. Any, any league where there's money, and you can go to Italy and Spain and has come to a similar scenario. Um, it's crazy. You know, it's just a crazy how it's all developing. I, I don't know how you can resolve it because, you know, clubs are not bothered about giving someone, whether it's Potter or you know, 20 million or 10 million or whatever they're giving them, Brendan Rogers getting a payoff, you know, they're, they're, they don't seem to be bothered by it because that's just like buying a, a potential player 10 million pound if you're going to pay off a manager. It's a really strange set of circumstances we've got ourselves in with a, with football. You know, I was looking a few weeks ago about managers from the past and looking all through the decades of the 1900s and Managers have been up and down, Sack lasted 10 years, 11 years and, and, you know, incredible length of time in football. But money wasn't there at that particular time. And even during the war years and and afterwards, managers were getting far more time, uh, you know, in, in, in that area. You know, and I just, I, I've just just found how it's gone, it's just gone bonkers.
3: The reason is desperation, though. It's like the, the, we're all saying this is what a thrilling end to the season it's going to be because, as I say, there's five points covering eight teams at the bottom that kind of increases the jeopardy for all of those clubs. So that's why we've seen so many changes. There's more more clubs than usual who are in real danger of relegation. I think that's the reason behind it. But clearly, as Tony says, the reason ultimately for that is the fear of, of lose of like financial Armageddon, basically.
1: Hugh, can I just ask I just want to ask you three a question on this. Are players get accused of being complacent very often in their careers, of saying complacency set in should he be sold off or should he be moved on. And I've always said, well, I've played under managers who I think have gone complacent. And I thought Brendan Rodgers ticked that box for me. It felt like he was so complacent in the Leicester job and his ego, the way he left Celtic and he took a job, more money and it was, you know, better potential back in the Premier League and he got there and then that all changed and he seemed to change as that changed and I understand all the, the injuries and, you know, leading players like smichael Vardy's hardly played this year, got one Premier League goal, all Brighton's moved on, Johnny Evans has been injured, all these sort of things are happening but I felt he just got so complacent by the end. And that relationship with the fans, which was very similar to David O'Leary's relationship with the Aston Villa fans at the end, where they just weren't having him. And that's how it felt Brendan Rodgers was being felt by the the Leicester C fans.
0: Would you would you I say complacency?
1: Can a manager be complacent?
0: Well, yeah, for sure. And I think the only thing that I would say is, at times you see, because of the structure of contracts now that managers get what you sometimes sometimes feels like from the outside again you have no idea and I'm not necessarily putting this directly on Brendan Rodgers is ultimately a lot of these managers know that you know when things are going wrong it's going to impact your reputation number one and if you see a group of players that aren't listening to you that don't want to take on board your your philosophy if you like on top of it you're getting a lot of pressure from fans you're getting insults when you walk down the street or when you're standing in the dugout whatever it might be and you know that if you do get sacked, you're going to get five million quid, and, you know, and ultimately you can move on to a better job somewhere else, possibly. You know, there are some managers who I think, again, they don't down tools. I wouldn't even call it complacency, but I do think it's maybe somewhere in the back of their mind that, look, it's not that big a deal if it doesn't go right. You know, and and ultimately that, um, that I think that definitely impacts players who get paid win, lose or draw. And at times maybe plays into the psyche of managers. Again, I'm not necessarily saying that happened with Brendan Rodgers. Who knows? Before we go, and we've been going for some time, so thank you for staying with us. Um, there are just a couple of matches very quickly wanted to touch on because I think there were big results at the bottom of the table. So West Ham one, Southampton nil, Tony. Uh, what does it mean for these two sides going forward?
1: Well, West Ham didn't play, particularly play well, Hugh, in the opening period of the game. Got themselves, obviously, from a set piece. Gar got a great header. Massive free points for them. They've had games in hand, but they've got themselves up to, what, 14th now. And Southampton, I think, with a big lad up front, I can't remember how you pronounce his name, Hugh. I'm sure you can pronounce his name. Six foot seven came on. I would have said to Southampton now, just go direct. And try and... You know, I know it's unfashionable and it's not the way, but try and find a way because we're having the two lads who started, Mara and uh, Walcott, down the middle. It didn't. They looked so lightweight in forward areas, Southampton.
0: Onuachu, Tony. That's the yes. pronunciation that Thank I'm going you. for. Okay, uh, hopefully I've got that right. Okay, yeah, I, I agree with everything that you've had to say on those two. Gregor, Bournemouth two, Fulham one. Huge win for Gary O'Neill's side. Uh, only their third victory since November. Um they have improved of late, you've got to say, and it could be at just the right time.
3: Yeah, they've been as I said, I think they've been unfortunate in a few games, they've quite a lot of late equalisers. Um and they've, they've started to pick up pick up some really important points and you know obviously after the Liverpool game as well, on the back of that to get another another home win is huge. And I you know, I, I think it's been said that a lot of the, the, the two substitutes that they made at half time bring on uh Christie and Tavernier just just transformed the game, and they've got you know Tavernier has been Tavernier was probably the most exciting signing they made in the summer, and he's had injury troubles, but when he's played, he's he's often had a hand in goals, and that was an absolute beauty he scored, mm. and then Christie, much like he did for Scotland in the first game, he came on, he impacted impacted the game. He's kind of got a lot of energy and drive, and he tries to make things happen, and, and ultimately he he. Uh, Made the run and and got the shot in that 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 produced the winner. So, um, yeah, huge. I, I you know a lot of people were writing Bournemouth off. I don't think that that would be wise. I think that they've got some spirit and I think that they've improved since January. They had a really really tough time after immediately after the World Cup, but they improved the squad and they've had a few players back fit and there's a few more that have that have found their feet at the level I think in essay and defence in particular. And I think they look like a much better team than, than they did around around Christmas time in the World Cup now. So they've definitely got a chance, much like everyone else. It's very, very hard to call.
0: And it's my fault. Um, I've gone on for too long. We're about to get kicked out of our studio. I'll give you 30 seconds, Gregor, to tell me all about Brighton 3, Brentford 3.
3: Absolute beauty. Absolute cracker of a game. <laughs> it was just a humdinger. Four, four goals in the opening 28 minutes. An absolutely breathless start. And just like a real... Clash of styles, for all the things that we know these two clubs for, all the traits that they share about having two kind of, two owners who've broke the be- betting industry almost and then turned their their, their data knowledge towards uh, their boyhood clubs, come up from League One to this level, you know known for innovation, great great work in the transfer market and stuff the striking thing for me in this game was how differently they have played the game tactically now in that Brentford were content to sit in a mid-block you know they didn't play the game. They weren't sucked on to, yeah, it sucked in by by Brighton's attempts to kind of debate the press, is what is what they do now. And they took the lead three times. So although the stats completely showed Brighton's dominance in this game, they had seventy two percent of the ball. I think they had thirty three shots, which was a season high. I think Brentford deserved a point because they when they scored the goals, it did not feel anything other than deserved. Brilliant from set pieces as usual, and. Two teams that continue to just upset the odds and it was an absolute cracker.
0: And what a stat from Opta. Every single outfield starter for Brighton had at least two attempts on goal. That's the first time that has ever happened but ultimately didn't get the three points that maybe their play deserved, despite what you said there, Gregor. Uh, Listen, we've run out of time. I can only apologise. We could have talked for longer. It was a huge weekend in the Premier League, but my thanks to Tony Cascarino, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson and to all of you for listening. We've got loads of midweek football to sink our teeth into as well. So we will be back on Thursday, probably another bumper edition then. So make sure you're subscribed. It's Monday, so definitely pick up the game. You can either buy yourself a newspaper or go online and subscribe. It's thetimes.co.uk, forward slash the game. We'll see you soon.